Welcome to the Safe Space for Dangerous Ideas. And I'm not feeling very safe today. I'm not feeling safe at all. My world has been shattered by a... I don't want to say... I don't want to swear on this show, but he's a good-for-nothing... He's a good-for-nothing consonant... Mm. Let me tell you what happened. And this is, there's a bigger story in this, by the way. So what's going to... I'll tell you what's going to happen today on the soapbox. I'm going to give you two fantastic vehicular rants. Rants of the vehicular kind. Uh, that's what's got me hot under the collar. It's a vehicular issue that I'm having. Uh, then I'll give you two brief science stories that have crossed my desk this week, which are fascinating. They involve drone guns and sharks. And uh, then I'll, I'll play a little of an argument I had with a tarot reader. Uh, so th- 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 this is a little cavalcade. This is an, a, a, a smorgasbord, if you will, of delights, of Zepsian delights. So um, about a year ago, uh, the family's in the car. I'm driving. We're busy. I can't remember why, but I remember I was frustrated and I was busy. And I'm in a very narrow cul-de-sac and I'm trying to do a three-point turn just to turn around and get back out of the street. And I'm not traveling fast at all. It's a tiny, we're traveling at one half of a kilometer an hour. Just, and I just feel a little bump. I'm like, oh, did I just touch that car? Did I just bump a car? So I stop. It's a parked car, right? They're, they're kind of angled to the street, you know, so they're all sticking out every which way. And I'm trying to do a three-point turn like Austin Powers in the movie where you know, there's no room. Uh, I'm like, well, so I stop, I get out. I can't quite tell. There's like a, there's what looks like it could be an indentation, but the car isn't that great a car anyway. So it may have just had a little indentation and I'm not even sure if I did hit it. And I'm not even sure if that's the spot where I would have hit it. So I get back in the car and Sean, my husband, being a better person than I am, says, you're going to leave a note, right? And I'm like, well, of course I was always going to leave a note. It never crossed my mind not to leave a note for a thing I may not have done. So uh, Sean writes the note, puts his name to it, uh, puts out his phone number on, slips it under the windscreen, says, look, we touched your car. Uh, call us if there's a problem. Uh, next day or later that day, we get a call. It's a long time ago now. I don't remember when the call came, but the call comes. The guy goes, look, I can barely see anything. Uh, but you know, I'm taking it into the garage anyway for a service. I'll get him to look at it. If there's any problem, uh, I'll give you a call. Thank you. He says, thank you for being the kind, upstanding, uh, people who would leave a note on a stranger's windshield. Well, I don't know if you've heard the phrase, uh, no good deed goes unpunished, ladies and gentle persons, but you can probably see where this is going. So anyway, we don't hear back nothing. We think, all right, that was fine. Six months later, Six months later, we get a, a call from him again. He says, I'm, I'd like to get it fixed. I'm going to get, the, I got to get it fixed. It's a, uh, you know, it, the bump is still there. He says, it was there. Then it wasn't there. It popped back out and then it popped back in. I didn't know that bumps could do that. I mean, some bumps, sure. Maybe if it was a bump like made of a soap bubble, but a bump on a, on metal. I don't know. But anyway, I take his word for it. Okay. He wants to get his bump fixed. It's six months later. Now, if you're shrewd, if you're smart, if you're canny, if you're savvy, this is the point at which you go, Josh, just tell him to fuck off. It's been six months. Like, you know, he had his chance to get it fixed. I don't even know what's happened in the intervening six months. Who knows? But Josh, being a nice guy who does good deeds that do not go unpunished, goes, all right, whatever. I can't be bothered. The, has- the hassle of fighting it you know, and of antagonizing him and having him calling us and texting us and emailing us and having his insurance company call. I, I, don't, I don't want it. I don't want it. 
We've got third-party property insurance with a very high excess of $700, but nonetheless, that's the maximum that we can pay. So Sean, I get Sean to call the insurer. We, I pay the $700 excess. The insurance company sorts it out. Pretty bad, right? Pretty bad outcome, you would say, for just a tiny little indiscretion and for the good deed of leaving a note to be $700 out of pocket. Oh, Nelly, you ain't heard nothing yet. I was happy with that outcome. I was happy with that outcome six months later in September. So uh, anyway, more time passes. We think nothing of it. I then apply for another car insurance because we just need to get another second-hand second car. And of course, my insurance premiums are now through the roof because there's a loading. My insurance premium's gone up with the car with my conventional car because you don't get the, the no-claim bonus, right? Now they think you're a liability because you've been in an accident. It doesn't ask you what kind of accident. When I'm applying for the new insurance, it just says, have you ever been at fault in a vehicle accident where you were the driver of the vehicle in an accident that had to be claimed on? Well, that sounds like I was driving down the highway after polishing off a couple of bottles of rum at 150 miles an hour. And then I, I took out a, you know, the side of a semi-trailer. All I did was a nudge, a little nudge, a little tiny, 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 itty bitty little nudge that just bumped and then popped out and then apparently bumped back in again magically six months later. I'm not asking questions. I'm not casting any aspersions on this guy. I'll do that in just a moment. So anywho, I lose with the no-claim bonus, more expensive insurance, all that sort of jazz. I pay the $700 out of pocket. Uh, then we go away. We, we, it's the summer. It's the holidays. And uh, we get back after a trip to, to New Zealand, uh, soaking in boiling mud pools in Rotorua, the geothermal volcanic area. And uh, uh, we get home, and there's a, a funny-looking letter, very formal-looking letter. And I open it up, and it's a court document. It's a statement of claim that the bloke has lodged in small claims court through his lawyer for $13,000 to cover the cost of a rental car while his car was in the shop getting the tiny bump repaired. 12000 and some dollars for the rental car, then 500 odd bucks for his lawyer's fee, and a $23 fee for him to pay for the registration license number search tool to locate us to know where to send the statement of claim to. Uh, now, this statement of claim is uh, dated January 4th. January 4th is very relevant, as my uh, solicitor subsequently tells me when I call him freaking out about this, because uh, this is the third call that my solicitor's had in uh, in the past week. Apparently, it's a thing that, uh, that like ambulance chasing no good lawyer scumbags do, which is you have 28 days to respond to the statement of claim. Otherwise, the small claims court regards it as being uncontested and decides in favor of the person making the claim. So when would you want to send your 28... When, you, when would you want the 28 days to begin? Well, you'd want the clock to start ticking, ideally at a time when the person might be away and they might not see it until you're already well into the 28 days. So apparently it's a tactic for people to be sending these things out right around Christmas and New Year, hoping you might be on a European holiday for the next three weeks and you get back and you don't notice it in your pile of mail and then it sits there for five days before you actually open it and bam, you're already on the hook for your $13,000 of made up rental car fees. I mean, I could have bought him a car for $13,000. 
Who, who rents a rental car that costs $12,500? How, like, how long does it take? Who is the lazy, idiotic panel beater who takes, what, 15 weeks to fix a tiny little bump? Anywho, it doesn't make any sense, and it's not intended to make any sense because uh, my little lawyer friend says, no, the point isn't that it makes any sense. The point is that either A, you miss it, and then you're on the hook for it, uh, and even then they don't expect that you're going to pay it. What they expect you to do is freak out, call them, say, look, I'm not going to pay you 13 grand, but I'll pay you two. They say, make it four, and then it goes away because they know that the cost to you in frustration of trying to fight the thing is more, and probably in legal fees, is more than just paying them to make it go away. So it's basically a shakedown. It's extortion. And this is going on all the time. In fact, my lawyer was saying, here's the good news. And just in case you're freaking out, just in case you're having a uh, mug of coffee and you're going, zaps, don't pay the bastard. Don't do it. Don't worry. I'm not going to pay a penny. Uh, because the other good news that my lawyer said was, actually, it's the insurance company's problem. And they deal with this all the goddamn time. All the time they are confronted with these trivial statements of claim. And because I had third party insurance, uh, it's just there. And so what they will they will do is they'll just say, this is totally ridiculous, but I'll give you X amount of money. And then they'll go back and forth and they'll do what we were going to end up having to do anyway. I mean, it, trust me, it offends every fiber of my being that this guy's going to get anything. If it was up to me, I would not only pay him nothing, I would countersue for the emotional distress of having to produce this podcast for you and rail about it. I would countersue until he had nothing left. His pockets would be empty. I would go around there in the middle of the night with a baseball bat and personally make sure that the tiny little dent that popped in and popped out and magically popped back in again six months later didn't fucking pop back out again. I'd make sure that was well and truly popped back in. I'd make sure the windows were smashed in as well before they magically reconstituted themselves and then magically smashed themselves back. I'd make sure his whole family was murdered and his house burned and razed to the ground. But fortunately, I'm a decent person and a busy man who hasn't the time to do such things. It's great being busy because perhaps your better instincts have to take precedence over your lesser instincts. And unfortunately, I don't have time to murder his family and burn his home to the ground, much as I believe I would be doing the Lord's work. So my solicitor says, here's what happens. The insurance company not only is going to negotiate this thing, but they will sometimes outsource the legal work of doing so to petty solicitors whose job it is to not only fight these things, but also to generate them. So the same individual lawyers will be going out and chasing people like this bloke and saying, oh, you know what you can do? You can get a few extra grand by lodging a totally trivial and bullshit statement of claim about some nonsense at a time when the person's likely to be away. You're going to scare the shit out of them. They're going to come back and pay you some money. All's good. Then you get your free holiday to Fiji. And that same lawyer who is doing that hustle on the side will be turning around and taking work from an insurance company, defending the insurance company against similar claims from other bullshit lawyers who are doing the same thing. It's a fucking scam and it's going on all the time. And the small claim. So I said to the lawyer, hang on, I have 28 days since I was served this notice, this statement of claim. What does it matter if I was away? Don't, isn't that the whole point as to why they have to hand you 
the claim. You know that you see in the movies, right? Like the you open the door, you know, is there Mr. Simpson? You know, oh yeah, I'm Mr. Simpson. Here's your divorce, you know, papers. And it has to be handed to you. That's the whole point. You have to physically receive it so that you can't claim you didn't get it. Well, he says, no, not in a small claims court in New South Wales, in Australia at least. No, a small claims court doesn't abide by the normal rules of justice. A small It's just basically a little kangaroo court where some so-called judge, I don't know if they even are a so-called judge, they may not even be called judges. I don't know what they, whoever the person is, whoever the hobo is who's presiding over the small claims court who they managed to drag off the street, uh, he will basically just kind of feel the vibe of whoever he thinks should get the thing. And if someone's got a piece of paper in front of him with a stamp on it and $13,000 and the other person doesn't show up, he's like, okay, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. That's a, that's a yes. That's a yes from me in the kangaroo court. Uh, so they don't even, so the statement of claim just begins whenever they send it to you. It doesn't even matter if they know whether you got it. That's fine. We're 28 days. Oh, you were on a four week trip to the USA seeing your parents and grandparents. Now, that's fine. That just means that you don't get to defend yourself in this system of so-called justice. So anyhow, I did a segment on that on the radio about, about when have you done a good deed that, uh, that did not go unpunished. And man, the number of people who call in and text it in, it was absolutely hilarious and very cathartic for me. It may be, you know, on the scale of one to 10, my desire to go and slaughter his family in cold blood and then burn down his house and smash his car in with a baseball bat went from about a 10 to about a 9.99. So I think that was a success just on an emotional and spiritual level in terms of my spiritual advancement as a spiritual being having a human experience in this cosmos. So I think that was an upside. Um, I did promise you two vehicular rants. Was that a good first one? Would you like to hear another? I can't. The other's not. The other's not that amazing. It's just, it's about demerit points, okay? In New South Wales, we're about to have a state election. That's the most populous state in Australia, of which Sydney is the capital. Uh, State election coming up in March. And the opposition party has promised that if they get elected, then every year that you don't commit a driving offense that, uh, that gets you a demerit point, you will earn back one demerit point that you may have lost. So we had a conversation on my ABC radio show about how many demerit points you've lost, whether you even remember what you lost them for, uh, whether you were stung by some low-range offense. Because here's the thing, they last for 40 months They last for three years and four months in New South Wales. So you could have been like, you could have been just not paying attention and you accidentally drove through like a school zone and you didn't realize and you were doing 50 kilometers an hour and it was supposed to be 30 kilometers an hour. And you could have done that before you'd ever heard the word COVID. You could have done that before the black summer bushfires in Australia and you would still have those demerit points on your score. And it doesn't matter how frequently you drive. It's not like you earn like good negative demerits for driving a lot without an offense, right? Which is kind of crazy when you think about it. If I am an old person who just, who hardly ever drives. And when I do drive, I just take the back streets to the local shopping center. Then of course, I'm going to have a clean driving record. But if I am a professional like truck driver and I drive the M1 every day, and I never lose a point all year, that's a fucking miracle. I mean, 
driving around Sydney, if you're not if you're not from Australia and you then you do not understand how strict traffic is in Australia. All of the authoritarianism that you saw brought to bear during the pandemic, during the hashtag Australia has fallen experience, all of that nonsense about how Australia is no longer a democracy because it's actually a totalitarian dictatorship, that was that was BS. But I'll tell you, on the roads of Sydney, it is a dictatorship. You will, If you just simply drive according to the conditions and try to drive safely without paying heed to the speed limits, you will lose your license within 12 months. You need to know exactly where the speed cameras are. You need to know exactly where the speed, where the speed limit changes are. Like a couple of decades ago, there were basically three speed limits. In most sane cities in the world, there are about three speed limits. There'll be one speed limit for little local roads, another for the intermediate large roads that aren't freeways, and another for the open freeway. In Sydney, there is 40 kilometers an hour, 50 kilometers an hour, 60 kilometers an hour, 70 kilometers an hour, 80 kilometers an hour, 90 kilometers an hour, 100 kilometers an hour, and 110 kilometers an hour. And all of them toggle back and forth in the space of about 200 meters, back and forth and back and forth. Unless unless all you're doing while you're driving is looking out for road signs, you will lose your license. So we were having this conversation saying, why isn't it that if uh, if you drive a lot then you get to sort of earn demerits. Like instead of it just being 30 months that you have for your demerits to go away, why isn't why can't you also say like, well, okay, it's 30,000 kilometers that I've driven. So either you can drive like one kilometer in 30 months or you can drive 30,000 kilometers in a month and if you don't get a single ding, you're done. You're good. You've earned some up. You got some in the bank. That's my proposal as I hereby announce my candidacy for the premiership of the government of New South Wales, the upcoming election. Uh, so yeah, the idea of earning points for every year that you lose none. Because also, if you drive perfectly for 10 years, that's not factored in when you have one bad week. But you know, if someone who, who systematically drives poorly all the time and loses a handful of points every year, is considered to be a better driver than someone who drives perfectly for 10 years and then, bam, makes one mistake. If you think that I'm a little hot under the collar about this, ladies and gentle persons, uh, I'll tell you why. I'll reveal. Okay, I'll pull back the curtain. I'll, I'll do the reveal. I'll, uh, here's the wizard in The Wizard of Oz behind the, uh, behind the curtain. When I first moved back to Australia in uh, 2017, right, I borrow a friend's car. This is before... Sean and the kids have even moved here. I'm out here on a recce, essentially. We've been living in the States. The kids have just been born. I'm just about to start a new job in Australia. The kids are two months old. I'm going to have to schlep them and all of our shit from the United States back to Australia. We don't have anywhere to live. We don't have any internet. We don't have any mobile cell phones. We don't have nothing. So I come out here for a week and I try to set everything up. I get the uh, the house. I get the, I get try to get things set. You know, all all that. Sort of, I buy a car. All that. I'm stressed. There's a lot to do. You know what I'm saying? So I'm driving a friend's car, and I'm used to the way that traffic cops work in America, which is they don't really. I mean, you know, it's people basically do whatever the hell they want on American roads, and they generally get away with it. And if you're in America and you're thinking that's not true, my cousin got a DUI. You don't know what you're talking about. You have no idea how intense the policing is in other jurisdictions. So anyway, I'm 
driving along and there's a set of traffic lights that are very familiar to me with a right-hand turn that takes forever for the lights to go green. It just takes forever. And there's a long, long line and it's a bright sunny day and I've got about 20 cars in front of me all waiting to turn. Uh, The lights go red, I stop, I put the car into park because I know it's going to take six minutes for the lights to change again and I'm just sitting there looking around whistling Dixie and my mobile phone's on the passenger seat next to me. There's no little mobile phone holster. What am I, an Uber driver? This is 2017. I'm just sitting there. It's my friend's car. And uh, the phone lights up with a text message. So I look at it. I reach over. I pick up the phone off the passenger seat. And all of a sudden, on the window next to my face, a knock. I look around. There's a cop on a motorbike. He's been driving, he's been rolling very, very slowly. We're on a slight incline, a slight hill going downhill. He's just been rolling silently between the cars. And he's obviously stopped just behind me at the rear passenger window. He's seen the phone on my seat, perhaps, or maybe he was just sitting there looking at me for no, look, maybe he thought I was disarmingly attractive. And he was just gazing at my beautiful visage, which is also something that, look, we're all susceptible to. Uh, Nonetheless, however he's done it, he's seen me pick the phone up Car is in park, completely stationary, red light, and uh, he uh, knock, 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 winds it down, pull over, sir. Eventually, when we get through the intersection, I pull over. It's a double demerit point uh, weekend, and I lose, I think it was eight points of 12 points. I think it's four points for using your mobile phone while you're driving. Now, that's the same penalty as if I was, like, driving a semi-trailer truck down a highway at 110 kilometers an hour in the middle of the night, and I was like playing Fortnite on an iPad and not looking at the screen, right? There's no, they don't make any distinction. If, you're, if, you're, if a digital device is in your hand, that's the crime. It has no, doesn't matter at all whether or not there's any impact on anyone's safety. That's the rule. And it has to be a digital device. I could have been reading a book. I could, have had a, I could have had a physical book in front of me, right in front of my face, blocking my entire vision while I sat there, and that wouldn't be a crime. But if that book was on a Kindle, crime. In fact, I could be driving along, I could be driving very fast, eating a hamburger. In fact, don't make it a hamburger, make it a steak. I could have a platter with a, no, better than a steak. Let's make it a pig with an apple in its mouth and some gravy. I could have been eating a pig on a platter with an apple in its mouth, and I could have been playing the violin at the same time, and I could have had a blindfold on, and technically that's not against the rules because you don't have a digital device in your head, and we know that using mobiles while you drive kills lives. So anyway, I lost my eight points, and perhaps, see, once again, here I've gotten hot under the collar again. I'm sorry, dear listener, for uh, getting a little, a little hot under the collar. But uh, I promised you two vehicular rants, and there you go. I'm going to end now. That's my two. That's it. Okay. One was about insurance scams and doing the right thing when you leave the note on someone else's windshield and then getting raped for it. And the other was uh, about whether or not perhaps the demerit system could be shaken up and whether it's entirely fair that I still don't have my eight points just because I glanced. Had a motherfucking text message one day. So a couple of interesting sciencey stories. How many sharks do you think there are actually in Sydney Harbour itself? 
we were jumping off a wharf deep in Sydney Harbour last weekend. It was a beautiful day. Uh, and uh, my uh, my brother uh, came down from the northern beaches of Sydney and uh, we had a little picnic in a park and the kids splashed around in a beach and there are dogs in the water. People are throwing frisbees for the dogs. People are throwing balls for the dogs. Uh, you know, lots of dogs splashing around. Dog Sharks love dogs. Sharks love the smell of dogs. They love the activity that the dogs make, that kind of flailing around. Uh, and dogs attract sharks. We all know that. So anyway, we throw our three-year-old, four-year-old, and nine-year-old children into the water around the dogs, as you do. Uh, they love the water as well. And uh, the sharks, you know, who knows? Anywho, I'm thinking to myself, look, we're not out in, uh, out in the beach here. We're not out in, this isn't, you know, this isn't the big water. This is the little water of the harbor. Why would a shark bother coming all the way from, from the heads, you know, where the, where the ocean starts? in Sydney, into the harbour, under the harbour bridge, and then all the way up into this this little arm of the harbour where we currently are and where we're starting to jump off this pontoon. And my brother says, do we have to worry about sharks? I'm like, get out of town. Get out of town. Really? Here? No. Not in the harbour like this. So anywho, I tell this story to uh, some friends of mine at work, and they burst out laughing. So I got on the show... <laughs> one of Sydney's leading experts on sharks in the harbour. And uh, apparently, I'm the only Sydney cider who seems to be unaware that uh, the harbour is literally teeming with bull sharks. You know, you're not going to get a great white and you're not going to get a tiger shark that deep into the harbour. But you may get a bull shark. And this uh, this uh, scientist who I had on, Dr. Amy Smoothie, she was saying, look, the shark doesn't want to kill you. It just wants to taste you. It's just curious. It doesn't even probably like the taste of you. It just wants to have a little nibble because sharks don't have hands, she said. So they can't feel what you are. They have to find out another way. So I'm sure that all the people who've had their limbs ripped off by a vicious sea beast will take that as some consolation uh, to know that it was nothing personal. He didn't even frankly like the taste of you, the shark. He was just, he was just exploring. So maybe next time I won't throw the the three-year-old into the uh, into the harbor that's a uh, science story number one for you science story number two there's this australian company i spoke to the ceo of it who make these drone guns and when i heard that i thought oh it must fire it must shoot drones out of the sky right no no something even cooler it jams the frequency that all drones use to navigate and to know where they are i didn't realize there's a particular part of the radio frequency spectrum it's basically it basically emits a light emits an invisible light gun that immobilizes the drone. And then the drone itself, it doesn't crash. The drone is actually unaffected. The drone is clever enough to know how to land safely, even when all of its communications are blown out. So the drone, so this happened in on the first week of January, three weeks ago. It was the inauguration of the new Brazilian president, Lula da Silva. And at his inauguration, there have been assassinations in South America of political leaders by drone. They have these, you know, drone, they have machine guns mounted on drones and bombs mounted on drones. They just come flying in, blow people up. So at the inauguration, uh, De Silva's security detail noticed four incoming drones, unknown drones, heading towards the new president at inauguration. These guys are now equipped with Australian-made drone jammers 
They fire them. They, they work up to two kilometers away. They fire them at the drones. The drones completely freak out and just descend directly to the ground and land where they are and can be intercepted. Isn't that cool? We're also selling these things to the Ukrainians, which is helping them in their fight against Russia. Uh, so I just thought that was uh, excellent. I want to leave you with a, an exchange that I had this week with a tarot reader who was, uh, was on the show because apparently in Prince Harry's book, he talks about going to visit a psychic, a medium. And he says he was a little bit skeptical about this. But nonetheless, when he was there, he felt a certain energy. And the medium put him in touch with his late mother, uh, the wonderful Princess Diana. May God rest, rest her beautiful soul. And uh, she apparently said to Harry that she's very proud of him. She's very pleased with everything he's doing. Which is lovely. That that's what the deceased tend to feel. I've never met someone who went to a medium, a clairvoyant or a psychic, and came out saying they connected me with my mother. She thinks I'm a fucking failure. She really does not approve of anything I'm doing. So it's good that uh, the dead are so positive. And uh, we were talking about why is it that your young kids these days are so into the occult? Uh, more and more of them are liking the, the witchcraft and the, the, uh, the tarot and the clairvoyance and the mediums and so on. And I spoke with a journalist who is quite open to this sort of stuff. In fact, she does tarot her, herself. And uh, her name is Amal Awad. And I was also joined by another journalist who's much more skeptical, Gary Nunn. I thought you might just enjoy uh, this little exchange. I'll leave you with this. Uh, nothing after this. Have a wonderful, uh, blessed week. We'll be back with regular programming next week. I, I don't know. I, I read tarot cards, so I don't I don't call myself psychic. Like it's a it's a skill set that you can use to almost like a mirror, really. You can use tarot cards because, well, they're quite beautiful. There's a lot of um, sort of archetypes in it and mythology and a lot of it has its own story and it's very relatable. And that's what a tarot reader could be, someone who is almost like giving you therapeutic advice. And I think listening to Gary, it was really interesting because he really tapped into what I think draws so many people towards these things and it's pain, it's need. And, yes, like sometimes people are you know, scammed and their grief is capitalized on. And I completely agree that I don't think everybody thinks of themselves as being deceitful. I think that there are charlatans, but I don't think everybody is one. So I wanted to wrap up my entire journey, but with a bit more gravity. So as a journalist, I was able to do research and I even traveled to the US and I attended a conference, uh, called Celebrate Your Life with an exclamation mark. And it was very... Without, a, without an exclamation without mark. An exclamation we wouldn't mark. be serious about celebrating your life. I just think life, it would have sounded a little bit despondent <laughs> yeah. without the exclamation yeah. mark. And it was, celebrate your life, question mark? And it was, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it was it was very American. You know, it was very American. And oh, I, yeah, we're going to celebrate our lives, man. You got you to grasp your life and celebrate it, baby. They're so happy. Like this woman came up to me and she had glitter stamps on her face and she was just like, yeah. And I'm like, I'm so Australian. And I just... <laughs> don't belong here. But, you know, I, I think what's really interesting for me is I always wanted to understand, okay, so we have these layers of information that I wanted to distill, which is we can't completely say everything is hocus pocus or nonsense because people are deriving benefit from these things. And how do we then regulate this sort of thing? Because every industry in life attracts charlatans. I, I watch so many documentaries on scams and fraud and all this sort of thing. And honestly, it, it infiltrates all aspects of our lives where there's a need 
there's always somebody who wants to capitalize on that need. And I think the reason why psychics get such a bad rap is because people are so vulnerable when they go to a psychic. You know, usually you go because you want clarity, you're feeling down. It does serve as a form of therapy. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't, that's a really bad idea. But it's different to say that there are scammers in every industry and that, you know, the medical industry has scammers as well. When you're talking about individuals who are bucking an institutional framework of knowledge that is quite rigorous in its understanding versus saying that there's this entire pursuit that is founded on full, on, on principles that we don't know. Yeah, but we it's have not. No this, is, so this, is where I would, this is where I think my book sort of diverges, where I... I actually realised how much shame I had internalised about my interest in what we call the mystery, you know, what's the unseen telling us sometimes. And allowing room in our lives for the supernatural or the unusual or the, the things that we can't explain. There's a lot of beauty in those things. I don't need to verify everything. Now, I internalised that because I think the new age has taken so many existing traditions and just completely turned them into commodities. And, you know, there's a capitalist machinery at work here that has completely upended that industry in a way. And I think it's it's actually, to me, really sadly taken existing traditions that are really beautiful and have cultural significance to people and actually just made, made fun of them. So you have all this mockery of Marie Kondo and yet she was drawing on a really important tradition to her with Shinto uh, tradition. So do you, do you see what I'm saying? Like it's not as simple as it's all just malarkey crap and everybody's just trying to steal your money there's a lot of like it's just not simple it's such a diverse world you know the mystery the the supernatural and so many people are curious about it and I I would honestly argue that I I can't verify this I haven't interviewed enough people for it but say you know two-thirds of people will will do a reading either because they're curious or because they really believe in it and they feel like it will help them in some way. And then one third will just be not interested at all. Gary, what do you make of what Amal was just uh, just saying about, you know, this, yes, there are charlatans everywhere, but clearly people are getting something. Yeah, the thing that I zoned in on that Amal was just saying was about the internalised shame for being a believer or being at least uh, on the curious side. And I think that a lot of people carry that shame, but we don't place that shame at people of faith, do we? And as a secular person, um, I would argue that there is no difference between the unfeasible supernatural miracles that they believe in and the unfeasible supernatural miracles that believers of psychics believe in. But what do we do with people of faith? Well, we gave them seats in the House of Lords in Britain for a very long time. In Australia, we give them tax breaks to run huge influential organisations. But with believers of psychics, we tend to be a lot more dismissive and a lot a lot more, we tend to laugh at them and see them as little more than entertainers. They're not afforded the same gravitas. And I think it goes to that internalised shame of people worry, Prince Harry evidently is less worried about this, but some people are worried that if they admit to it, their credibility and their intelligence um, and their rationale will be questioned. And I reveal that in my book because uh, what I do with my book is uh, I take it in a bit of a different direction to what Amal has taken in, in her book. I reveal the secret influence that psychics have over powerful people, so chief executives, world leaders, um, and the police. Um, and also people like Prince Harry, people who've got a lot of influence, have got a lot of power, have got a lot of money. Um, and they're all susceptible to the same uh, human emotions as, as Amal was saying, pain, fear. 
um, grief. We're all, it doesn't matter how much money or power you get, you are just as susceptible to those things and the need to process them. Um, but I think that there is there uh, one of the most interesting stories that made me change my mind about the people that seek out psychic counsel was the executive chairman of the biggest stockbroking firm in Australia, BBY. His name was Glenn Rosewall, and he hired a psychic and paid her for four years to advise him on where to invest the company's stocks and shares. She also advised him on who to hire and who to fire. So she'd say, um, the, the spirits are predicting that Amal isn't going to perform very well next month. Find a way of firing her. Excuse he ran. Me? He, <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> but it's what the spirits say. It would not happen. <laughs> so he ran that company that way, paying this psychic, Naveen Rottinger, for four years. It did not go very well. It went bust. It was the biggest stockbroking firm collapse since the global financial crisis. And I reported on that story for the Sydney Morning Herald. And um, he was put on the dock for corporate mismanagement in the liquidators report. And the psychic was called as the witness. And it gave me this new hunch that maybe the people that seek out psychic counsel aren't as I'd first considered, like my sister, which was vulnerable and as a result of that, perhaps a bit gullible and naive. Perhaps, in fact, they were like him, which was uh, powerful, authoritative, and as it turns out, responsible for uh, hundreds of stuff and $61 million of other people's money he lost by paying a psychic for four years and running the company that way. Mm. Insane. Where I get tripped up here is there's clearly... When you speak to true scientists, not, you know, persnickety sceptics who want to be dismissive of everything, but when you talk to Richard Dawkins about the majesty of the cosmos, Amal rolls her eyes at the very name Richard Dawkins, about the majesty (laughs) of the cosmos, you hear from someone who is overwhelmed with with mystery and wonder at the cosmos. Amal's frowning. You haven't spoken to Richard Dawkins. I just don't understand why they can't. Like, everybody does that. They talk about science. And I I, I don't know where having a, a... Sort of some sort of kinship or interest with the un, with sort of the unseen world. Well, have you read Carl Sagan? Many years ago, I, I'm familiar with I mean, him. His daughter are... actually wrote a book about the the importance of still having wonder and joy. And that's what I'm talking about. The, when I... you're talking about when you're talking to people who devote their lives to understanding yeah. the, how extraordinary life is and how majestic it is that mm. we can have evolved from. Uh, from simpler organisms, how extraordinary it is that we find ourselves in a cosmos that is knowable at all. When you read Richard Feynman or Carl Sagan or any of these people, they are overwhelmed. They are exuding so much more awe for the majesty of the cosmos than any dime store psychic who's taking money and saying that they're connecting with sure. a medium. I, so I it's not a. It's we're not in opposition. It's not like one side is devoid of wonder and the other has wonder. It's just how do you respond to the wonder? Do you say? There are enormous mysteries which we can't possibly fathom, so we'll do our best to understand the things that we can and all of those other things that we don't know we won't claim to have certainty about, which is the scientific approach. Or do you say, no, we can know that because the stars are in a particular shape in the sky, that means that this is about to happen to you or because I draw this card, that's going to happen to you. Like that strikes me as the the position with greater certainty and less wonder. Absolutely. So... Sorry, I didn't mean to sound combative. <laughs> I was I was just the thoughts were coming out so quickly. Part of my journey has been understanding it's very, very dangerous uh, to use psychics as a band-aid. And that's essentially what happens. And your sister, when she was in her peak state of grief, she knew she wasn't really getting anything out of that. It was just sustaining her, right? Prince Harry saying he felt an energy, that's communion. I, there's no energy in that room, probably. It's just communion. What happens when somebody looks at you? 
and gives you their full attention, you probably start crying. Or hold your hand. One one of them mm. held my hand, and I realised it had been a long time since anyone had held my hand. Um, you know, and mm. and um, and suddenly I just felt touch, the, yeah. the human touch, and it's very powerful. Care. So so this is the thing. So our vulnerability, mm. you know, exposes us in this way. Now, what I would say is, if anything that I learned from my journey was, I don't need psychics. I don't need them, but I did at one point. So that tells me where I was at in my journey. So I agree with you 100%. There's a beautiful world around us that we should be invested in. And the, the more we, time we spend listening to psychics, whether they're on YouTube or TikTok or, uh, you know, the, the, the lady at the market stall on Saturday, we're not trusting that world that we're in. We're actually relying on an external world mm. to, to show us the way. And most of the time, people can tell you everything you want to hear and you don't change a single behavior, right? So as someone who's read tarot cards before, I can tell you they're only useful if the person on the other end is genuinely taking something away from it and implementing change through their own intuition. So I can't tell someone what to do. Like I can only say this is what the card, the story that the cards are telling me this. I still don't even know why I can do that. I don't know what it is. It's just, and but I would always... I don't do it for a living. I wouldn't take that responsibility. I also just really urge people if, if you have an interest in it and you want to find someone who really helps you, but do it once a year. That's it. Don't, don't go every month. A lot of people, they get caught in this loop of going to a psychic and it becomes this thing. It's like a hit. Mm. And an they addiction. feel... Yeah, it's like an addiction for some people. It becomes Total an addiction. addiction. Yeah, so it's very dangerous. I, mean, it, and it, I completely take, take your point, Amal, that, that people are getting something out of this and there's that sense of connection. There's that sense of, you know, when Prince Harry is saying that he feels an energy, is not dreaming. I mean, being very close to someone and sharing something profound and delving back into your the most traumatic thing that has ever happened to you and could ever happen to yeah. anybody, which is losing one's mother at an early age, yeah. that is going to stir up and energies 100%. that feel, uh, you know, quite unique. But the, then the question from the the person who's questioning the utility of the psychic or the, the medium becomes, if the medium were there saying, we're creating a special moment in this room by sharing with one another the trauma that you've been through, that would be one thing. But that's not the extent of what the medium's saying. The, the, medium's claim to, to the medium's claiming to be doing something quite different. 